Hey, what's up, y'all? Alan Kenny, host of Blatant Homers and Podcast, part of Sooner Sports Radio on the V Sporto Network. Uh, it's Selection Sunday. We've got March Madness Raid to uh, kick into high gear this week. Uh, as we do every year, I've invited our uh, friend Matt Zemek of FanRag Sports on to uh, talk about uh, everything uh, that's going to be going on uh, these first few days of the tournament and, and just kind of general thoughts on how the selection committee did. So let's go ahead and welcome him on. Matt, how are you doing? Doing great. Happy Selection Sunday, a.k.a. Happy Christmas uh, Night. Yeah, it's funny. You know, it, it's also uh, the first day of Daylight Savings Spring Forward, which to me is the worst day of the year. So uh, I guess it's kind of balanced out there. But uh, looking at, uh, you know, the bracket this year, Matt, I, I guess any general takeaways? I mean, to me it looks like they got the teams right. Um, I, I think that you could make, you know, there you could uh, – Certainly make an argument, though, that uh, there are some issues with some seedings and placements. Yeah, you know, I, I've, I've been banging this drum for years that the while, while selection is obviously important, and yes, I don't think there were any bad inclusions or, or snubs, but uh, it's, it's been a point of mine for several years now that bracketing, is, is, this is more than seeding. Seeding is its own uh, task. The bracketing, the placement of teams, in combinations and, and in certain locations is always the most neglected part of what the committee does. And, th- and this bracket thunderously affirmed that notion. This was a lazy bracket. It's a dull bracket, but moreover, it's a lazy bracket. It's a lazy bracket for a number of reasons, but chiefly that either regular season rematches or 2016 NCAA tournament matchups were repeated. Uh, there are several. Uh, Iowa State and Purdue were both in a four and five seed sub-regional pod last year. That's been repeated. Providence and USC played in the first round, the round of 64 in last year's tournament. They're playing in the first four in Dayton. I mean, how how hard could it be to have simply cross-matched Kansas State and Wake with Providence and USC and just, just to get different matchups? The committee couldn't be bothered. Kentucky and UCLA played in the regular season. They could play again in the Sweet 16. North Carolina and Kentucky played in the regular season. They could meet again in the Elite Eight. I mean, you can go on and on down the line, and there are so many rehashed, reheated matchups, and that's lazy bracketing. Because the NCAA tournament, with 68 teams now, even more than with 64, it should be a format in which you could get fresh matchups which, which did not happen during the regular season. And, and just speaking for a moment as a college football fan, which, of course, you are as well, you know, we who cover college football go insane over the lack of non-conference big-time matchups which occur during a college football season. So to see the NCAA tournament repeat several matchups, oh, it just makes my skin crawl. So this was a lazy bracket, and it's a lazy bracket because it's a repeated bracket on many levels. Yeah, and looking, you know, you mentioned uh, potential matchups there like Kentucky-UCLA. Looking here in the east, you know, Villanova has uh, Virginia potentially in the uh, round of 16. Uh, Iowa State and Kansas potentially running it back for, what, the third time, I guess, uh, there over in the Midwest in the round of 16. You're right, there are a lot of just – that's a very good point. A lot of uh, kind of rematches from games that we've already seen. 
Um, in terms of teams that you think, uh, you know, situationally, either via seed or geographic placement, might have gotten a raw deal. Any anything that sticks out to you? Well, not necessarily in terms of the raw deals, but in terms of just the, just the mistakes. The number one mistake, and this is an all timer, Alan. This is this is arguably worse than UConn in 2014 as a seven being given a Buffalo sub regional pod and then feeding into the uh, Sweet 16 regionals uh, in in New York, South Carolina. First of all, getting a seven seed, South Carolina. I figured South Carolina would be in a seven ten game as the ten seed. You know, this was a team that that tanked late in the season and lost to not very good teams, uh, including in the in the SEC tournament. Uh, the, the South Carolina has lost several games and and. Uh, not even to Kentucky and Florida, but really to the middle of the pack in the SEC. That, so South Carolina figured to be a back-end seed. I mean, 9 was probably the ceiling, and 11 was the floor, and yet this team gets a 7. But then after seeding South Carolina 7th, the committee puts South Carolina in the Greenville, South Carolina opening pod. So here's, here's something that's very important. In 1986, LSU got to the Final Four as an 11 seed. LSU was the first uh, double-digit seed to get to the Final Four since the NCAA tournament began to be seeded in 1979. People might remember, if they're old enough, that LSU played its opening sub-regional pod on its home court in Bat Baton Rouge. So... It certainly became a point of focus for the committee to not give those mid-tier seeds five through eight or nine or 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 or, or eleven, uh, you know, home court or games close to uh, the home campus in the opening rounds, and yet that's exactly what it has done with South Carolina. So even more than than UConn in 2014. Uh, this is uh, just an appalling bracketing error. The seeding is, is part of it, but the bracketing error is just, it's an absolute bracketing crime. It's bracketing 101 to avoid something like that. So uh, it, it's just, it, it shows how little vetting and advanced thought goes into the bracketing part of the process for the NCAA tournament. Yeah, yeah. Um, that That one definitely stuck out to me as well. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, I think, uh, otherwise, uh, really looking at it, though, it seems like all of the SEC teams were probably at least a line higher, maybe two, uh, th than I expected for most of them. I mean, did you get that impression also? Uh, generally, yes. I think, I think Florida needed to at least win one SEC tournament game to justify a four. So, yes, it should have been bumped to a five, and it should have been bumped out of or the Orlando pod with a favorable geographical placement. I think Florida did not earn the right to that. Uh, I think Arkansas at eight is, is reasonable. Arkansas got some work done in the SEC tournament, uh, kind of held itself in a steady way. Uh, and I think, you know, if, if I think that South Carolina should have been like a 10 seed, then I did feel that Arkansas justified a higher seed line. So I think Arkansas's eighth seed uh, is pretty fair. 
Vanderbilt, though, getting a nine seed as the first 15-loss at-large team ever, uh, that's a couple notches too high. I thought Vanderbilt, maybe, I think I think if Vanderbilt, uh, by beating Florida, might have earned a ticket out of Dayton. I think that's fair, that, that Vanderbilt avoided the first four. But g- being pushed all the way up to a single-digit seed at nine, uh, that was too much. So definitely, and, and it's it's important for listeners to note that last year the SEC brought aboard uh, former Big East Commissioner Mike Trangese as a consultant, and Trangese clearly uh, told SEC basketball programs, athletic directors, I'm I'm sure, uh, how to schedule properly and how to how to game the RPI. And when you look at South Carolina's uh, profile, South Carolina didn't have a lot of high-end wins in the top 30, but it loaded up on wins in like the 45 to 60 range. And, and that, to me, tells me that Trangese, you know, really worked with the Gamecocks, among other SEC programs, in terms of, you know, in, encouraging them to play mid-majors and other off-the-radar programs who he thought were likely to finish in the uh, middle to back end of the RPI top 80. And that's why South Carolina ended up 26th on the 1 through 68 seed list. But, I mean, the, the, you know, so there's a, there's a two-way split here. On one hand, you know, I don't like the RPI as a measurement system. I think everybody agrees that it needs to be tweaked in terms of the information which goes into it. And with that having been said, if, if the RPI is such an important thing for the committee, and this, this uh, bracket really very much affirms that notion, if the RPI is important and if it's a, a central metric used by the people who seed and select the, the field, then if you're an athletic director, if you're a conference commissioner, if you're a head coach, you need to do the things that you know, game the RPI and work it to your advantage. I mean, it's a cutthroat billion-dollar business. If you're not doing that sort of thing, you're not doing your job. And the SEC schools, they clearly did their job this year. Yeah, yeah. Now, let's go ahead and look uh, bracket by bracket here, if you don't mind. Uh, Starting off with the East, uh, you know, this has some, uh, you know, intriguing, uh, you know, potential matchups here insofar as uh, Wisconsin, for example, in the second round against Villanova. That's a tough matchup for the Cats. Uh, also here, you've got Duke as the two seed. Uh, a lot of people were talking them up as a potential one after their uh, ACC tournament win. But uh, really, I think that uh, looking at the committee had them, I think, is maybe the number seven team overall. So they really weren't even that close to a one seed. Yeah, what's, what's interesting here, and I realize that this is going to get some of the conspiracy theorists all revved up, but I'm not really meaning to do that. But I just—it's hard for me to—it's hard for me to shake this, Alan. That you know, Duke, as we just saw in the ACC tournament, Duke does well when it plays in New York or New Jersey. Um, dating back to the Meadowlands in the mid to late 1980s, early 1990s, you know, Duke does well there. Duke draws big crowds when it goes to the New York-New Jersey corridor. It's kind of a home away from home, and. A part of me thinks that the committee kept Duke as the two in the East instead of making it the one in the South uh, so that the committee could get Duke in Madison Square Garden 
for the East Regionals, as opposed to Memphis for the South Regionals, which is much close, which you know is close to North Carolina, and you'd probably get a lot of Tar Heels in the building uh, for that. I, I have, to, I, I just a part of me wonders that if, let's say Duke always did well in Memphis and had a great history in Memphis, and North Carolina had a great history at Madison Square Garden or the Meadowlands. I'm wondering if the roles were reversed that the committee would have held to uh, Duke as the two in the East and Carolina as the one in the South. So that, that's an intriguing part of this. The other part is, you know, the committee really uh, adhered to the notion of a regionalized bracket by having uh, the Duke UNC number two as the second seed in the East uh, and also uh, by having Arizona as two in the West, you know, uh, on if on the uh, ESPN bracketology show, John Calipari and then later Jay Billis both made the general point, and I agree with them on this because they made the point that we should just be doing the S curve and we should be doing classic seeding, seed the tournament, and just put the teams where they're supposed to go. Uh, you know, that's that does make sense because the whole point of a bracket is that you. If you earn a higher seed, if you are a higher seed, you de you deserve a comparatively easier draw than a lower seed. I mean that that is bracketing 101. If you bother to have a bracketed tournament, higher seeds should get better draws, lower seeds should get more difficult draws. So if you're going by that principle, Villanova is the number one overall seed. So to me, uh, the two seed in the East should have been reserved for. Either Oregon, which I know got a three, I think Oregon could have been the weakest two shipped out there. Duke, if it if the committee didn't feel that Duke deserved a one seed, then I think the next fairest thing was to put Duke as the two in the Midwest with Kansas, uh, you know, a much more vulnerable opponent uh, compared to Villanova. But instead, the committee stuck with the regionalized bracket, and that's because it doesn't follow the S curve anymore. Uh, where, you know, one plays eight and four plays five, strongest one, weakest two, and vice versa. And I disagree with that. Jay Billis disagrees with that, and John Calipari disagrees with that. So there's a real conflict between a regionalized bracket and a balanced bracket. And and I think one of the things that is getting lost in this is that the NCAA has already made a concession to regionalization by having the pod system, meaning you know, North Carolina, if it's a one seed, it plays near its home on the first weekend, you know, even if it's in the West region, it, it plays the first weekend at home. You know, when Georgetown won the national title in 1984, the Hoyas were the number one seed in the West. Back then, if you were the number one seed in the West, even if you were, you know, a team from Washington, D.C. in the East Coast, you still had to play that first weekend in, in a, at a western site. So 1984, Georgetown played at Washington State in, you know, in this 8,000-seat gymnasium in Pullman and did not play very well at all, but, but got through it. Um, but So the pot system was designed to re cut down on travel and create more regionalization. But that's the first weekend. The second weekend, the regionals, the Sweet 16, that should be purely about best matchups, not as good matchups, and who gets the fairer bracket. So this East region, to circle back to it, with Duke being the two, 
it's a product of this regionalized bracket. And I think Duke got a very raw deal, even though it's going to get plenty of fans in Madison Square Garden. I think that you know Duke being sent to the bracket with the number one overall seed and the defending national champions, and moreover, a Villanova team that is used to playing at Madison Square Garden and just won three games in Madison Square Garden. You know, I think that's a that's a perfect chemical cocktail. Um, which works against Duke. I, I will allow that Duke got a pretty favorable draw in the first three rounds of the tournament, but still, at the end of the day, the, the Blue Devils have to go through Villanova to get to the Final Four, and that, that has to be very uncomfortable for them. Yeah, I don't know. I, it's funny. I actually tweeted out last night uh, you know, uh, while Duke was playing that I could see something like uh, them losing the second round to, uh, and I mentioned Marquette, <laughs> uh, you know, because they they would want the Wojo Coach K uh, matchup there, you know, uh, and uh, you know with uh, how much how much offense Marquette has that that that's going to be end up being I think a tricky matchup for him, but uh, not to belabor Duke, but what what's our consent? I mean, right now Duke looks like one of the tournament favorites, um, you know, betting wise. But, uh, you know, what do you think our consensus opinion about the Blue Devils would be had uh, Bonzi Colson not rolled his ankle last night? You know, I, I, I am not particularly sure about the Bonzi Colson angle because Notre Dame never got too much separation. And Notre Dame, excuse me, Duke, just had a way of coming back from second-half deficits throughout this tournament. I mean, not not against Clemson, but... Duke was down 12 midway through the second half against Louisville and 13 uh, against North Carolina and was able to turn both of those games around. And obviously Duke had a lot to do with each of those comebacks, um, but also Louisville um, just started taking bad shots. Louisville started falling in love with the three instead of taking the ball to the 10. And North Carolina got Joel Berry um, in foul trouble with four and when he was out, you know, Duke uh, outscored Carolina uh, by a hefty margin. So even when Duke was winning, you know, there were some unusual plot twists. So I, I am not one to, to say that, oh, Duke has a clearly established identity. I, I, I really don't. I think this was a joyride. I mean, an impressive one. You know, for this team to continuously come back, that, that required a lot of gumption and resilience. Uh, you know, to, to come back from double-digit second-half deficits against Rick Pitino and Roy Williams on consecutive days, that, that's pretty spectacular. But even then, it just feels like a, a, a perfect confluence of circumstances that, that uh, came together uh, in Brooklyn for Duke. So Duke's... NCAA tournament fate, in my mind, Alan, was always going to come down to the matchups. And I think they're really good through the first three rounds, but then I think Villanova is, is the, the one seed, the number one seed that Duke didn't want to face. I think if, if we lived in a hypothetical world where Duke was placed with Gonzaga in the West, one and two, I would have liked Duke there. If Duke was placed as the two in the Midwest with Kansas, I would have liked Duke there. But I don't like Duke with Villanova. So, do you have Villanova coming out of this region? Absolutely. I, I, I think that, uh, you know, getting... Vander, uh, Villanova was outplayed most of the time by Virginia in that regular season matchup. So, if they meet again in the Sweet 16, you know, I think that Villanova will be able to dictate the contours of that matchup. So, I really don't see Villanova being seriously threatened 
at any point. I, I, I realize that Wisconsin definitely has a puncher's chance, um, but the Badgers have never really come together this year. And if there was any possibility of the idea that Wisconsin is kind of, you know, returning to the form that many people thought it was after beating Northwestern by, I think, 28 points yesterday, well, Michigan soundly defeated the Badgers today. So I think that put the kibosh uh, on that. I think that Villanova will be able to pretty steadily march through the first three rounds of the tournament and then be in a favorable position against Duke in the final. Um, okay, let's move down to the West real quick. Uh, looking down here, obviously, uh, Gonzaga's the one seed. Um, you know, another <laughs> uh, interesting thing, you know, they put St. Mary's down here in the West with Gonzaga. I mean, it wouldn't have been that hard, you would think, to... Uh, I mean, the chances that, that Gonzaga sees St. Mary's again are low, but, I mean, it wouldn't have been that hard to switch those guys around some. Um, any general reactions here? To me, this actually sets up pretty well for the Zags. Well, a general point to make about the whole tournament, I invite listeners as they're looking at their at their own bracket sheets, how many teams seated three or lower have a decent chance of, of getting to the Final Four? Now, I, I think that there's it's, it's kind of counterintuitive in a year when, you know, there hasn't really been one dominant team and in which there's been a lot of mediocrity throughout the sport. It, that might seem to suggest that, oh, anybody can get hot, anybody can emerge from this clutter and uh, and make a big run in the tournament. But at least on paper, now th- uh, this obviously means that what I'm about to say is, is exactly going to, you know, the opposite yeah. is exactly going to happen. Uh, but at least on paper, I don't see teams seated three through six or seven uh, making much of a run. I think that Michigan as the seven yes. in the Midwest is probably the best example of a of a like a six to eight range seed with a real chance of making a deep run. But other than that, not many. So to go back to the West, I think only three teams can win this region: uh, Gonzaga, Arizona, and then number five seed Notre Dame, which has made the Elite Eight. Each of the last two seasons, I, I, I'm I'm not very high on West Virginia. I think West Virginia, while deserving its four seed, is playing closer to a six right now. Uh, the Mountaineers, you know, have trouble hanging on to the ball. They don't shoot their free throws very well at all. I mean, th- those are definitely recipes for de- defeat against a patient team such as Notre Dame, which can spread the floor, has good shooters. So I'm I'm just not feeling uh, any team other than the three that I mentioned, you know, Florida State has high-end talent, but the, the Seminoles' woes away from Tallahassee are, are well-documented, and the, the Seminoles have, you know, incredible physical talent and ability, but it's, it's a team which does not string together successions of great games. It's a team that, that will play great one night and then fall off the map the next. So, if it's anyone other than Gonzaga, Arizona, or Notre Dame, uh, I'll be very surprised. And so since uh, Gonzaga and Notre Dame are in the top half of that bracket, you know, I, I'm looking at Arizona and seeing no profound obstacles uh, for, the, for the Wildcats before the regional final. Uh, I think it's, if, if, if Sean Miller is going to get off that uh, schneid and make his first Final Four, boy, it, it could not be set up any better and the fact that the final four is in phoenix you know it it really gives arizona a great chance to win the national title 
Interesting, interesting. Um, looking at uh, the Midwest, uh, to me, uh, I'm not sure how what people think about Kansas as a whole, but just logistically, uh, this sets up really well to me to see uh, the Jayhawks make it to the Final Four because, you know, I mean, I, I'm a Tulsa native. That uh, that trip back and forth to Lawrence is nice and short. Then uh, playing in Kansas City, I mean, that's going to be a very pro-KU crowd. I know that everybody, uh, you know, Bill Self is a, is a fun punching bag this time of year, but uh, I've got the Jayhawks making it to, uh, making it to Phoenix and, and actually doing it pretty easily. Well, you know, this is a thing where uh, the the geography and the logistics are great for Kansas, but I actually think that this is the toughest of the four regions, partly because partly because of what happens in the lower half of the bracket with Michigan and Louisville, the winner of that likely second round game, you know, having high end potential. But also, you know, let's say Iowa State does get through to the Sweet Sixteen. What you will have then is not just an Iowa State-Kansas rematch, but it would take place in the Sprint Center in Kansas City, which is exactly where Iowa State just won the Big 12 tournament and always gets a big crowd coming up from Ames. So of all the five seeds on the board, uh, Iowa State got – a favorable geographical placement, which again goes back to bad bracketing. You know, if you're a five, you should be shipped out of your geographical region. But Iowa State's going to have a very comfortable uh, setup in Kansas City should it get there. And so that becomes a very tough game for Kansas because Iowa State's going to be full of confidence uh, for one thing, but secondly will be in a very comfortable set of surroundings. Um, so, so that that game could be very dicey for Kansas, and then I know that Michigan State looked really bad on offense against Minnesota, but it's still Tom Izzo in the second round. So, of all the number one seeds, and this might be going by reputation more than the actual quality of teams. I will I will make that concession, but nevertheless, uh, the Bill Self could have an Izzo Iowa State. Louisville or Michigan path to the Final Four, and I don't think any other number one seed can can match that in terms of difficulty. The other number one seeds might have extremely difficult regional finals, but the other number one seeds do not have nearly as difficult uh, second round and Sweet 16 games. Interesting that you bring up uh, Iowa State. See, to me, they're a uh, a, uh, first-round upset potential uh, to me, I mean, I, I really like the way Nevada's playing, and, and uh, they pose kind of a, a really tough, I think, uh, you know, just, just a tough matchup for the Cyclones just based on how well they defend, So, uh, particularly around the three-point line. So I'll be interested. Uh, that That's definitely one that I'm going to have my eye on. Plus, it's got one of those late tip-offs, right? I think it, it tips off at 10 o'clock on uh, 10 Eastern, that is. Yeah, on that first day. That uh, That's an interesting one to me. Um. Looking at okay, let's uh, finish up down in the south. Um, oh, you didn't tell me who do you have coming out of the Midwest? You know, I I can easily see Michigan. Uh, yeah, get on a roll and and actually not even making the regional final, but but making the final four. But I'm going to trust that Rick Pitino is going to find enough defense to contain 
Derek Wong and get past Michigan. And then, you know, Patino is he's either 11 and 1 or 12 and 1 all time in Sweet 16 games. So he'd be able to take care of probably Oregon, which doesn't have Chris Boucher, which is going to be which is probably going to matter a lot if that's the matchup. Um, and then I would I would favor Patino and Louisville over Kansas should that be the regional final, which is probably what it's going to be. Interesting. Okay. Uh, looking at the South, uh, North Carolina is the one seed here. Kentucky, the two. I mean, there's a lot of big names here. I mean, North Carolina, Kentucky, UCLA is the three. Uh, a lot of prestige here. Yeah, a lot of prestige and yet flawed teams. You know, UCLA showed a soft underbelly against Arizona. Um, UCLA, let, let's pick apart that UCLA-Arizona game from Friday night in the Pac-12 tournament. In the late in the regular season, when UCLA went to Tucson, uh, UCLA's defense struggled in the first half, but then the second half, Steve Alford uncorked his zone, and Arizona was totally flummoxed by it. Uh, Lori Markin was just chucking threes, missing most of them badly. He looked very off, looked you know, a little bit tired. Arizona just did, just did not have any idea of what to do against the Alford zone. So Arizona was ready this time. There were more skip passes, more dribble drive attacks toward the elbow areas. Uh, the Wildcats were much more lucid and, and prepared in, the, in their game plan, and it showed. So UCLA is going to have a hard time defending. And then that's a very similar issue to the Kentucky team, which, you know, the Kentucky lost decisively at home to Kansas in the SEC Big 12 Challenge in late January, and that's been the only non-SEC team Kentucky has played for two months. And and even though the SEC got five teams in, you know, we had that earlier discussion about how the SEC gained the RPI. I think it's going to be very hard for Kentucky to go against teams outside its conference and raise its level to the point that it can play championship basketball. So. Uh, UCLA and Kentucky in a Sweet 16 rematch, uh, you know, it'll be played in Memphis, cl- close to Kentucky's backyard. But I don't think Kentucky has developed enough on defense uh, to be ready to stop UCLA. So I actually think that the Bruins got a good draw there. But if let's say that UCLA makes the regional final against North Carolina, boy, Carolina's size and length and depth. UCLA is going to have absolutely no answer in that matchup. So in many ways, I think that the, the pivot point of this whole region is a North Carolina-Butler Sweet 16 game. Physically, athletically, North Carolina is better. No one would dispute that. But Butler is so disciplined in its assignments on defense that, that Butler could really fluster uh, North Carolina. You know, uh, Duke was able to guard Justin Jackson very effectively. And so, you know, Butler might be able to do the same. And if so, you know, Carolina is going to have to be very patient in terms of how it works the ball. And Carolina is also going to have to uh, hammer Butler on the board. Now, while Carolina has more size than Butler, Butler is always positionally sound to the point that, you know, it, it, Carolina might have a hard time effectively crashing the offensive glass. So I actually see that as a tricky game for Carolina. I mean, it's not like an overwhelming game, but, it, but it's certainly a tricky game. And I think that UCLA, 
uh, which I which I'm ha- which I'm putting in the regional final. I think that if UCLA wants to get to the final four and take that last step to Phoenix, it will need to face Butler and not North Carolina in that regional final. But I don't think it's going to happen. I think Carolina beats UCLA to go to Phoenix. All right. So your final four, you've got uh, Villanova, Louisville, um, Arizona, and also the last one was North Carolina. So who do you have cutting down the nets? Um, if that's the final four that we have, um, I like Arizona. I think that if Arizona gets to Phoenix and gets rid of the final four pressure that's been on Sean Miller's back, you know, that, that's just going to be a desert party. Uh, and, and when Arizona last won uh, the national title, it didn't beat Carolina in the championship game, but it did beat North Carolina uh, in the national semifinals in Indianapolis. So um, Arizona over North Carolina in the final is what I have on my bracket. So naturally, Alan, what that means is is that you're going to have um, Kansas beating Duke um, yeah. for the yeah. championship. Yeah, something like that. You can that. take that to the bank. <laughs> All right, there yeah. we go. There we go. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you, though, the point you made earlier about the uh, lower-seeded teams, you know, below the three-line uh, I don't see many. I I, I think it's going to be. Uh, in fact, right now I, I'm leaning towards all the one seeds. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't think that the the amount of parity, uh, you know, at the top is necessarily uh, as great as everybody seems to think. Absolutely, and, and I think an important thing for listeners as they're evaluating a bracket is that you know maybe the seven seeds and the six seeds will beat the three seeds and the two seeds. I mean, I'm, I don't think so, but I, I'm, I'll allow for the possibility. Just the point of emphasis is that these, these, if a six beats a three, let's say, uh, let's pick a good example. Let's say SMU um, coming out of that six spot um, beats its, its third seed uh, in the second round. I'm trying to... Locate that on the bracket. They had have SMU Baylor. Baylor, yeah. Yeah, so if SMU beats Baylor, um, it might not necessarily mean that SMU is all that great. It might mean that Baylor is scuffling, which, in fact, that's exactly what Baylor has done over its past 10, 11 games. Baylor's been around 500. No one other than LeCompte has, has been able to score. Jonathan Motley has struggled. So if Baylor doesn't find that secondary scorer, uh, you know, the three seed could lose to a six or even an 11 in the second round, but that might not be a commentary on how uh, strong the six is. It, it might be a commentary on how weak the three is. So even though I see the top two, three seeds consistently advancing in and through this tournament, uh, I will allow that if you're, if you're going to pick upsets, you really shouldn't be thinking about which six or seven seed is stronger Michigan being an exception, you should generally be thinking about which two or three seed is weaker. That's really how you should think through this bracket as you make your picks. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Matt, let everybody know where they can uh, find all your analysis for the next few weeks and going forward. Okay, well, I am now at FanRag Sports, and we uh, the Twitter handle is FanRag Sports, and our college-specific site is FanRagU. FanRag underscore U, and you can find me on Twitter at Matt Zemek, Z as in Zebra, E, M as in Michael, E-K, Matt Zemek. Uh, I'll be live-tweeting all, all of the tournament, 
And, um, you know, Fanrag Sports is headquartered in Phoenix, so we're going to have plenty of video, interviews, you know, the works uh, from the University of Phoenix Stadium in Glendale at the Final Four. And um, I can tell you that Kyle Kensing, uh, one of our lead college basketball columnists, is going to be part of our coverage team at the Final Four. You'll want to follow him, and you'll also want to follow two of our rock star writers under the Fanrag Sports banner, John Rothstein. This is March. (laughs) <laughs> and also Adam, Adam Zagoria, the uh, New York-based columnist um, who writes extensively on college basketball, college basketball recruiting, also tennis, and, and many other interests from his own site, Zag's blog, but he's also now part of the FanRag Sports team. So we have some high-end writing talent, a lot of number one seeds in our stable, and so I hope that listeners will enjoy uh, what they put forth and will follow those writers and also our various social media sites these next few weeks and then beyond into the off season. Awesome. Well, hey, Matt, thanks so much really for uh, coming on, man. Really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we can do it again next week. Always a pleasure. And, uh, you know, let's, let's enjoy these next three weeks. The, the best in American sports. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks again to our guest, uh, Matt Zemick. Make sure to check out Tim and everybody else at FanRag Sports. Uh, always do a lot of great work over there. And uh, thank you all for joining us. Uh, For the Blatant Homerism Podcast, I'm Alan Kenny. Take it easy.